Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you that you have given us a, a very pleasant evening. And uh, so for some who could be warmer, some who don't mind the, the cool air, you've given us the variety. Thank you for variety. Thank you for the delight that you want to give us, that you that you gain pleasure in giving us, and, and that you want to bless us. So tonight we come, we come expectant, come hopeful, even a bit desperate. Jesus, hear our prayer, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. The uh, crazy story this is fresh this is like hot off the press a week ago i get a call or our church office does from a lady and she says my name is kim i've got to talk to one of your adventist pastors and and however she said adventist uh my admin assistant knew that it was not she was not an adventist Right, it's one of those, uh, and and so takes the contact, and and I call this lady Kim back, and here's her story. She said, "I'm Presbyterian, a bit Baptist. I don't know what that means, uh, but she said I'm I'm Presbyterian, a bit Baptist, uh, but my husband is an ex-Adventist, and he's in the process of a reconversion, a restoration, and I don't know what to do with it." She said he walked into the house the other Friday afternoon. And in a not so, uh, he, I guess he, he, he came across a bit strong, and he says to her, listen, can you get our food, and, and there's seven in their household, can you get our food for tomorrow all prepared before sundown, and can it be vegetarian? So she calls the, ad, the Adventist church, I need help. She says, I have no idea what to do with this man. They both come in and sit down. This guy was baptized when he was 19. He, he was in an Adventist church out in North Carolina for a couple of years. Walked out decades later. Now, they own a, a major uh, business, a concrete business in northern Colorado. And he's feeling something stirring. He's saying, there is something going on. Something's going on. And so he begins to read the great controversy. And his heart's stirred and his convictions are stirred. And so he, unfortunately, as he, as he sat in my office and I, I told him, I said, you are being very militant about this. There's, there's a couple of ways to go about informing your Presbyterian Baptist wife about this. And you might need to slow down, buddy. He said, but it's just, I mean, this is big stuff. Something is going on. It, that story right there in our hometown reminds me of a story Arthur Steve, director uh, for uh, or editor of Liberty Magazine, just wrote, picked up his magazine over the, or Liberty Magazine over the holidays, and I'm reading his story, and he's telling the story of, of earlier in the last summer. He's saying he, he's, he's bending over his gardens. He's got a couple of gardens near the fence. And I, I picture this because we've got there in our backyard three 
raised beds that we garden in. And our neighbor is like this six foot eight super guy. And his wife is, is, is tall too. Uh, and, and so they come over, they, they come to the fence and, you know, they're, they're just kind of rest their chins on our fence. And, and so you'll be in the garden and, and then you'll hear this voice. And we've got fantastic neighbors. We call them pre-admins. They, 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 they came to us. They came to us. This is like, whoo, you just don't say this to a Seventh-day Adventist. They came to us and they said, pray for us. We're not satisfied with our church. We're thinking of changing churches. <laughs> Fantastic. We'll pray for you. Oh, you just love them. They just don't know. They just don't say some things to a Seventh-day Adventist. Right? So, they uh they're in a, they're they're in a spiritual journey. Great Christians, though we love them, and and they'll speak over the fence to us. So Arthur Steve, he's talking about he's digging in his garden, right, looking over his vegetables, and he hears this voice from his neighbor over the fence. Now leaning over the fence, he, he thought he was alone, right? Of course, and his neighbor says to him, Arthur, do you think? This COVID-19 is one of the biblical plagues. Arthur C. says he paused for a moment, still pondering the future of his vegetables and how they would be reach their full potential. And then he looks up into his neighbor's face and says, no, no, I, I don't believe it, it is. It doesn't have any of the specific characteristics of the plague described in Revelation. But, he says, it certainly is the type of thing Jesus told us about that, that would characterize the end time, and he told us about it in Luke 21, Matthew 24. Uh, it's, it seems to actually be, he's reflecting now, so he's answered the question, but now he's reflecting. His neighbor's question seemed to be very similar to those who were troubled with Jesus and asking about the timeline. Do you think this is what, what's going to happen? How is this going to happen? All right. For such a time as this, your, your Bible app uh, will come in handy because you can't, if you have a Bible, you can't see it. Uh, by the way, if, if you're in search of a Bible app, I have been using literal word. I hope that's what it is. Literal word. It, uh, it's incredibly user-friendly, and it has the original language. I mean, just you just tap on the word, and you get the original language. Uh, and so it's so fast. So it, 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 For me, it's just so streamlined. It, it's, um, it's fun to use. I'd say I've been using that. I've been using that for my to read off of, but I'm doing I, I read the Bible through every year, four chapters a day, plus a psalm in Spanish. I went to the University of Montemorelos, and so just to, to spend time in the word in Spanish, I read a psalm a day in Spanish, and then four chapters, just Genesis to the Revelation. Uh, and I I I'm doing something that I've never done before, and I didn't think I would like it, but I'm falling in love with it. I'm journaling, but that's not nothing new. I usually journal, uh, reading these chapters. But I'm listening to a dramatized version of the Bible, listening to it and just journaling as fast as I can. 
uh, through it. There's, it's worth a try. It's worth a try. If you're, if you're saying, oh man, I, I, I don't know what my, my journey through scripture, I'm just, I'm kind of stalled out. Try, try downloading. Uh, I, I downloaded some dramatized version uh, app. And now of course the, the risk is that if you're easily distracted, you don't really want your phone or phone on when you're trying to spend, but if you can overcome that hurdle, then uh, it's a huge blessing. So, oh, we're in Luke. Luke. <laughs> so Dr. Steed is now reflecting on this, uh, on this question from his, his uh, neighbor over the fence. And the question comes to Jesus in Luke 21, verse 7. Teacher, they ask, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? That's, that's what we're asking. Now, a year into this, we're really at the anniversary of a year of COVID, right? A year into this, we almost might be tempted to allow the questions to wear off. But I promise you, a year ago in April, these questions were rolling around in your community. What is going on? Is this the end? Now, jumping down to verse 9. Jesus' answer. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first. The end will not come right away. Then he said to the nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Whoo, wait a minute. That is, that is a, mm, mm. you might be tempted to interpret nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom as, as some sort of international interpretation. Not so quick, not so quick. There is within this answer, the idea of tribalism. Have you heard of that term tribalism? Tribalism does not need borders. We're going to, I'd love to just spend time on that, but we're going to get into that later this week. Kingdom and its kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places. And fearful events. Dr. Steve says, that's what I, I gave her. But then, he reflects, as I answered her question, immediately, Dr. Steed says, I could tell it calmed her. It almost relieved her. It, she almost breathed a sigh of relief. And he reflects, what if I had, what if I had answered differently? What if I had said to her, no, in fact, this is one of the plagues. What would that have done for her? Would she have changed in some meaningful way? And would a change at that point be meaningful anyway? You get what he's, what he's saying? His answer, no, immediately placed her, placed her in it, kind of, kind of put her back on her haunches. Okay. But then he says, if that answer didn't stir within her a desire for change, no, this is in fact exactly what Jesus talked about would happen right before the end. Okay, so it's not the end. Oh, good. Oh, 
of sin. What if I have said, yes, this is the end? Would she have changed? And if she would be willing to change, would that change really have mattered? Would it be meaningful? If tonight we were to say, Jesus is coming tonight, and you decided then you will now change your life, is that change meaningful? Because you change for the effect, for the reward? Dr. Steve says he walked away from that short garden conversation discouraged because it felt a little bit too much like what we find in Luke 21. Jesus, tell us the timeline so we know when to get serious. The neighbor's question, is, is this COVID-19, is this the thing that I should get serious about? No, he said, oh, good. Whew. Then I'll just wait it out. That's a problem. And then Dr. Steve begins to reflect, what about me? What is it going to take for me? Am I waiting for it? For the, the, the very end, God, give me the timeline. Our community of faith has been very diligent to know the timeline. To some degree, possibly placing us at a disadvantage where we are not willing to say, well, okay, but this, this is not it. I remember Last April, I'm listening to a, to a colleague of mine, and he gives, gives very, very solid uh, systematic thinking in how he unpacked, look, COVID-19 is not the end. This will be, and then there will be a, a, gospel, uh, a, a gospel movement to our communities, and then the end. And he laid it out, and I remember feeling Relieved. Okay. Whew. Somebody handed me a, a new book. Well, new to me, it was still in its wrapper. Uh, Mark Finley's book, Understanding Daniel and Revelation. And uh, in that, Finley says, Jesus points us to the book of Daniel in the context of a world in turmoil just before he comes. And that sent me on a study. Daniel, the book of Daniel, is in fact the only book that Jesus specifically says should be our study in the context of a world in turmoil just before he comes. I hadn't, hadn't thought about that. So I, I have spent uh, my Christmas break and January and February going back to the book of Daniel. And that's, that's where I'd like to invite you to join me this week in the book of Daniel. It's the only book that Jesus is specifically, this you've got to know in a world of turmoil. I'm telling you, beloved, I have, I have, I have not had a more 
impactful study on my personal life and the journey of my, my congregation there at Campion than this. And so I'm very excited to take this journey with you. The most, the, the most intense struggle I've had as a pastor in a congregation came during this study, not be not related, not specifically specifically related, but as I as I kind of scratched my head and said, God, how in the world did this happen? How how did this is this is ugly, this is this is terrible, this is tragic. And then and then this this the thought came over me. It, it, I, if we would stay away from the book of Daniel, maybe, maybe the devil would, would step back. So I warn you, if it's the book that Jesus wants us to study, it's the exact book Satan doesn't want you to study. Uh, you, remember, you remember Daniel chapter 12, that, that final chapter. I wish we could go to Daniel chapter 12 right now because it's, it has, it's so beautiful. But just, just for tonight, verse 4, right? You've heard this verse over and over and over. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the end, till the time of the end. Many will go here and there will, and there to increase knowledge. No doubt you've heard, you've heard, but the, the English, no English translation that I've seen bears this out, but there's a definite article in the Hebrew. Of course, Daniel written in both Aramaic and Hebrew. Uh, interestingly enough, the final word of Daniel, the very last word of Daniel is, is a bit confusing uh, for theologians because it's written, the first half of the word is, is a Hebrew word, and the last half is an Aramaic word. And there's a whole unpacking that they do of that. Why in the world? No other word is like this, where it's part Hebrew and part Aramaic. It's like the Spanglish, right? You kind of mix it. And Daniel uses the final word and mixes the two primary languages of, of, uh, of his book. But we'll get there. We'll get there. We're going to come back to Daniel 12. But here, there's a definite article, the knowledge, a specific knowledge. We've often heard this, or, or many of us have heard this, as some sort of, hey, at the end of time, there's going to be this increase in knowledge and medical and science and technology. Woo! And then all these quotes uh, and all these statistics about how we've increased in knowledge. And maybe in some secondary way, there is some reference to that. But Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4, seal up these Seal up this information until the time of the end. And at the time of the end, people will go here and there looking for this information. The very, the very, the very end of Daniel then contains this clue that Jesus references. Hey, guys, this is what's going to be unpacked. The book of Daniel. You've got to talk about it. You've got to open it up. So let's talk about it. But I want to I want to 
I want to disabuse us a, a little bit of, of what could be a misconception of, of what is prophecy. Daniel, the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation both reveal the great cosmic conflict. And they pull back the curtain to allow us to see the, the readers, the listeners, the struggle between good and evil, God and Satan. Readers are allowed to see this great controversy. What began in heaven is being played out here and will be finished here. We are able to locate ourselves in the prophecies, in the, in the, in the, in the timeline. That's where we are. However, however, the primary purpose of prophecy is not to foretell the future. Isaac Newton calls it the folly of interpretation. He says, you, 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 you've taken prophecy to just create timelines to foretell We've been really good at this. And, and we're not wrong. We have the, the Seventh-day Adventist approach and understanding of the books of Daniel and Revelation are head and shoulders above any other approach. Ours are so systematic. I have no argument with with this, however, we have we have we have played ourselves into just information. Just give me the facts. I want to know who and when. And that's not the primary purpose of prophecy to tell us the who and the when. One one Adventist commentator writes, "Hey, look, prophecy has a purpose that is primarily moral and salvific. It's not meant." To be intellectual, mere crystal ball, in, crystal, crystal ball enlightenment regarding the future would more likely inflate us than make us Christ-like. Do you understand what, what this commentator said? We take this information to say, now we know. Now I know. First comes Babylon, then the Medes and the Persians, and then Greece, and then Rome, and then and then and then there's a little horn, you got roots three horns. Wow, and then there's and then there's and then there's as if we're rehearsing for some sort of uh, test. Well, the real test, the real question is moral and salvific. What, what about my heart? Dr. Steve continuing to write his reflection in Liberty Magazine, tells a story of some years ago, he was doing a question and answers after a program. <laughs> and a gentleman asked the question that is on or has been on each one of our minds at some point. Excuse me. Yes, sir, in the back. Uh, I, my question is... Uh, Tell us, when exactly in the timeline should we be afraid? <laughs> Don't pretend you've never, your, your, your chuckle, uh, 
Yeah. Gives it away. Uh, tell us, when when should we be afraid? Dr. Steve says he used to give regular updates to his dad. Hey, dad, guess what happened? Guess who? Guess what? Oh, he said he did it to try to get some sort of startled reaction from him. I love my mother. Oh, I love my mother. But my mother does, I call, I call them every Friday night. My parents live up in Oregon, and I call them every Friday night. And inevitably, there is a Friday night, my mom will say, hey, hey, did you hear? Did you hear? This is what, this is what they're doing. I, I say, first of all, mom, who? <laughs> well, I don't know. It's, it's, it's either the, the government or the Catholic Church. One of those two people are doing it, right? It's some sort of Protestant coalition, some sort of... <laughs> I said, mom, okay, mom, now, now, okay, now tell me what they're doing. Oh, and, and it's just just this wow factor. We, we love the wow. No way. So, so Dr. Steve said he would give his, his dad this kind of updated information that, ooh, dad, check this out. And his dad would invariably answer the same every time. Isn't that exciting, son? Jesus is coming. Tell us when we should be afraid. That's, that's what we want to know, the, the timeline. Hans Lorndell, in his, in his book, How to Understand End-Time Prophecy, or the End-Time Prophecies of the Bible, wrote the main motif of Daniel's book. That's the thrust. What's the thrust of Daniel? Is it the timelines? Is it the statue? Is it the beast? Is it this horns? Is it, is it, the, is it the two? Is it the... What is it? What's the main thrust of Daniel? Hans Lundell writes, it's the assurance of the restoration of God's truth and the deliverance of his faithful covenant people through the Son of Man. That's it. The, the, the most prophetic book in the Old Testament and even arguably the Bible. The main thrust, the main motif, the message, what it wants to accomplish is the restoration of God's truth and the restoration of his people. Hallelujah. So I go into this then, December. I live, I get to be part and minister on a campus, and so come Come the holiday, we we get a, a great schedule. Everybody's gone, everybody's off campus, and and so I I open the books and and just spend extra time reading. Well, I took a I took my family up to Michigan. My wife's from Michigan, took her up to visit her parents, and I'm sitting in uh, my in-laws' uh, house there with my stack of books on the kitchen table. Just you know what Michigan's like in in December, huh? you stay inside, right? Just inside, snow is falling outside. And uh, I'm reading these books. And my father-in-law, who's a retired pastor, says, hey, what are you reading? I'm, I'm reading Daniel, got this commentary, this 
this book, this reference, all stack them on the table there. And he says, hey, I've got a couple that uh, I don't see there. Let me get them for you. He brings up a couple of more. And I begin to read uh, a commentary on the book of Daniel. It's entitled Daniel, but it's in, it's, the title is in Hebrew. Uh, and it's written by a name you might recognize. The author, Desmond Ford. All right. So now I've got to, because I'm going to quote him. So I'm going to defend why I'm quoting him. This book, this book, his commentary in the book of Daniel was written in 1978. All right. Before I was born and before Glacier View. Now, we live in the shadow of Glacier View. So we, Glacier View is a very special place to us. We're right up on the mountain above, above camping there. He, he writes this book in the 1970s, publishes it in 1978, and then in 1980 is kind of the, the head-to-head moment. Now, I don't want, if you say that I was defending at all the positions or, of Desmond Ford, you will be, you will be mistaken. At least in his post-1980 position. I'm very aware of, of what his misunderstandings have done, and I don't support it. But in 1978, his commentary in the book of Daniel was published. This is, this is, this is only my, my take. If the book of Daniel was the one book that Jesus specifically told us to study in the context of the end time, in, in the turmoil of a world gone crazy, if that's the book Jesus told us to focus on, if the prophecy within Daniel itself said this will be locked up until the end time and then it will explode, it will go out and it will stir a revival. If that's the book, then it doesn't seem strange that a man who would write a commentary on that book would be especially targeted by Satan to destroy. And so I've come to the conclusion, this is, a, this is just my conclusion, coming out of a, a, a month of December, a holiday season, studying his work, that Satan put a special target on Desmond Ford and destroyed him because of it. So watch your back if you study Daniel. Now, Desmond Ford's commentary. Special blessings, he writes, are promised to all who make the truth of Daniel their rule of life. Now, let me just pause right there. Special blessings are promised to those who make the truth of Daniel their rule of life. That's what we're talking about. There is something here in Daniel that is, that's what Hans Wandel was writing about. There's something more than just knowing a timeline. There's something more in the book of Daniel. We've written it off as some sort of, thank you very much. Now we can prove that Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. Now we can prove when the, the, the who the little horn is and, and how he, they persecuted and and wait a minute. That's not at all what Hans Wendell 
Not at all what Mark Finley, not at all what Desmond Ford concluded. No, there's something in the book of Daniel that changes a heart. There are good grounds for believing, Desmond Ford writes, that the last spiritual awakening the world will know before the return of Christ will be sparked by the study of the book of Daniel in connection with the elevation of the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Did you hear that, beloved? Desmond Ford, I believe, was destroyed by Satan. Satan said, I can't, I can't get him to, to, to not believe, so I'm going to get him to, to misunderstand because I don't want people to focus on this book. The last spiritual awakening will come from the book of Daniel. All right, so where are we going? Back to Mark Finley's work. Mark Finley writes, listen, prophecies in, in, in reference to Daniel, prophecies tell us when, the stories tell us how. Now, come on, come on. Think about the book of Daniel. What is the book of Daniel? Prophecies and stories. Here, God takes this magnificent work and intertwines story with prophecy. And we have thrown out the stories as if there's some sort of good for, for the children in primary division. We'll take the meat, the statue, the, the beast, the lion, the leopard. We'll take that because we're the adults. You have never gone to a prophecy series on the book of Daniel and heard. Daniel and the lion's den, the three worthies. Daniel wrestling in prayer. You don't hear those. And there's this thought that says, wait a minute. Among the theologians, there is within narrative, there is prophecy. Like stories are actually prophetic statements of what it will be like. The how. The stories tell us how, the prophecies tell us when and who, but the stories tell us how. They're prophetic statements of how, and we've skipped over them as a community saying, hey, just give us the facts. Beloved, we have missed the whole purpose of the book of Dan. All right, we got Pastor Philip up here. Pastor Philip, just for the sake of, you might have to move around a little bit, just to, yeah. I'm fearful that we have abused the prophetic book of Daniel, and we've worn ourselves out without ever having gotten the main message. Hans Lorndell, the main motif. Let me ask you kind of a rhetorical question. What's God's number one project? What's his number one priority on this globe? You. You. Not the U.S. government, Mom. Not what the Pope is doing. 
That's not God's number one priority on this planet. It's me. It's my heart. So why would God give one of the, or Jesus referenced this incredibly prophetic book to tell us about what everybody else is doing? We like that. Oh, we like to figure out what everybody else is doing. But that's not the idea. That's not the main goal. I wonder how much our angels have wept going, you missed it. You went right to Daniel 2, two you skipped Daniel 1 because, well, it's just about how Daniel didn't eat the, the stuff. And yeah, it's okay, Daniel chapter 2. We skipped Daniel chapter 3 because that's, well, it's, it's okay, but it's, it's fiery furnace. We go for Daniel chapter 4 because we want the good stuff. I believe the devil says, if I can't feed them, I'll just get them to focus on what won't change their hearts. Beloved, my heart has never, I have never been brought to a point of conversion by knowing that the little horn uproots the three horns. I've never, and it's not, now it's going to sound like I'm, I'm denigrating this. Not at all. We ought to be intellectual students of God's word and know the timeline. But if that's all we know, we're lost. We're just smart and lost. What's number? What's God's number one priority on this planet? It's me. It's you. It's our hearts. And so could it be that through the narratives, through the stories of the book of Daniel, God gives a prophetic message of how his final generation is to live, survive, and trans transport themselves through the world in turmoil? Could it be that the when and the how, or the when and the who, is still there, but the how comes birth through the stories? Daniel, through the narrative prophecies, describes who we are to be. This Daniel, he's a crazy guy. He's, God uses them to influence world-ruling empires. The whole book, Daniel is taking a stand for heaven. In every one of the narratives, in every one of the narratives, there is conflict. Why? Because the context in which the final generation will live is one of conflict. Get over it. We're like, hey, did you see how, how, how angry those people were? The protest? How? This is the context of the final generation. Conflict. Behind the scenes is this conflict. Interestingly enough, Daniel never seems so concerned about who rules the world. He doesn't care. He's almost indifferent. Hey, King Nebuchadnezzar, great knowing you. After you, the Medes and the Persians are going to come. It's going to be okay. After them, Greece. He's almost indifferent to who's on the throne. Very unlike some of the Christians of the United States, who are all concerned. Oh, come on. Come on. 
Oh, yeah, let's move on. <laughs> right? Here's what I thought of over the last couple of months. Jeremiah chapter 12 and verse 5. You, come on, you've heard this. If you have raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with the horses? If you've stumbled in safe country, how will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan? What's Jeremiah's question? You've gotten, you've gotten distracted with, with the child's play, with the foot soldiers. How are you going to stick this through when the horsemen come? We've become all consumed with how things, who's on the throne and who's on which side. We are very concerned. Now, Daniel was a politician. He was involved in the affairs of the kingdom. But you don't hear one word of his position on the affairs of Babylon. Not one word in the book of Daniel on whether he thought it was too progressive or too conservative. Not one word. <laughs> I'm, all, I'm, I'm all for voting. My father-in-law is one of those geniuses that can, uh, he's like the guy that you call when you want, when you're, who wants to be on a million, who wants to be a millionaire and then you have phone a friend. You let me know, you call my father-in-law. He knows, he knows every date Every person, who their wife was and who their children were. He knows everything. The man is, he knows a lot. And so he's, he's also very involved in politics. And, and not in an opinionated way, but just in a, he knows what's going on. And he, he's very faithful to vote and he's very, very diligent. His daughter, my wife. I'm telling you how it is in our house. I had to look on my ballot this last presidential election to know how to fill out hers. I know that's really messed up, but it's just the way it happens. She had never voted. All right, so we voted. I'm not at all diminishing this. But I found it strange that, that the whole system of voting is set up to be private. Everything about it is private. Nobody's supposed to know unless you tell them. But we have taken what was supposed to be private and made it a very public thing for us and taken what was supposed to be public, the love of Jesus, and made it very private. How ironic. Daniel, Daniel gets into our face and says, listen, what you were supposed to, I, I, he's very private in his politics and very public in his concern for the kingdom of Jesus. We've taken what should be very private. And we've made that what's public on our social media. And we've taken what was supposed to be public. Go, go tell the world. And we've made it very private. I'm reading a, a book right now titled The Madness of the Crowds, Douglas Murray, author and journalist based in Britain. The Madness of the Crowds. He says, we are living through an era in which the grand narratives have collapsed. In their place have emerged a crusading desire 
to right perceived wrongs and a weaponization of identity, both accelerated by the new forms of social, me social and news media. Narrow sets of interests now dominate the agenda as society becomes more and more tribal. Meaning, if you agree with me, we are friends. If you don't, you're a bad person. You're not just, we don't just disagree. It is now my tribe and we surround people around us. These are the people that agree with me. We know more than you know. We're smarter, more, we're righter than you. And for you to disagree makes you not just wrong, but bad. And we've taken the grand narratives of life and we've, we, we, we've kind of thrown them off the edge and concentrated on some very narrow narratives, narrow items that now distinguish one tribe from the other. The Presbyterian lady, Presbyterian almost Baptist, lady sitting in my office last week said to me, can I still be acceptable to God if I eat meat? Because her militant husband in his, in his, in his kind of in his revival had become so militant that he was communicating a message to her that if she differed with him on this, She was not just wrong, but she was bad. We're doing that. We'll boycott. We'll boycott. We'll do whatever it takes. Why? Because the CEO made a statement that sounded a little political. I am now going to buy as many of their beans as possible. Or... I will not buy their beans, their cans of beans. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, poor God. Because the CEO said something that sounded like he supported the president I don't like. Okay. Naughty, naughty world. Shame on them. I'm glad it doesn't happen in the church. Oh, wait. Before we look down our long noses and point our bony fingers, we invite speakers that agree with us on the narrow narratives. And we disinvite speakers. And we know we won't go hear a speaker because he or she has supported. You filled in the blank. I didn't even have to. That speaker is no longer called or ordained by God to speak on a subject totally different than what you disagree with them on. But because they support that, they are progressive or they are conservative. And I won't grace them with my presence. Tribalism. Only the people I agree with. And Douglas Murray is right. We begin to become distracted. And here's Daniel, a representative. His narratives, which were 
We're going to go into one at a time. Daniel chapter one, the three wordies that I, I could not believe the truth and the impact of Daniel in the lion's den. Do you know the one issue they took with Daniel? The one issue, they said, we can't find anything wrong with him, except it has to do with the law of his God. The final generation will have one point of controversy with the rest of the world. But here's what we've done. We've distracted ourselves. We know best. We know what's right. Listen, I married into a, a, a family of pastors. My father-in-law is a retired pastor. My wife's sister married a pastor. So we get together. We get together in, the, in December over the holidays. And we're all runners. We, we're all marathoners. Well, we've all ran marathoners, whether, marathons, whether we're marathoners or not. Uh, <laughs> right. We've all ran marathons. And so we're out there running early in the morning. We, go, we all go for a run. We've got a dental hygienist, my wife. We've got a social worker, her sister. We've got her husband, a pastor, my father-in-law, a pastor, me, a pastor. So you've got a hygienist, a social worker, three pastors. And, and we pretty much know what's right. Like we know people that know people that, that one in the group, one in the group says while we're running, I know somebody in the Department of Defense. I've talked to them personally. Trump isn't leaving the White House. I know for a fact. My, my wife had a patient come in, tell us, I know somebody. I know somebody, they're a personal friend of mine right here in the state of Colorado. There's going to be martial law by this Friday, three o'clock. We all know people. I'm, at, I'm, I'm visiting my parents in, in Oregon. I'm sitting at the breakfast deck with my mother, having a wonderful conversation. When I see my father rise up out of his recliner, my father does not rise up out of his recliner very often. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, he's a very hardworking man, but at the end of the day, he does not rise up out of his recliner. He rises up out of his recliner and declares, That by March 1st, the election will be thrown out. We'll have a whole new election. I said, Dad, where are you getting this? He said, right here in this news release. Here's my point, beloved. You, too, know somebody. You've read it. You've done your research. And you've drawn your conclusions. But let me tell you something. Like it or not, you don't know diddly swat. You don't, and either do I. We can't, which maybe is why Paul declared in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence of human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Daniel speaks to a generation who begins to think they know what is right and wrong. They, they've got the affairs of this world all figured out. And Daniel says, why, why are you messing with that? 
Why are you distracting yourself with who should be president and who should not? Now, I, I, duh, I voted. You should vote. But why are you consumed with figuring out how to get life on this planet fixed? There is one thing to know, one thing to be concentrated on, one thing to be consumed with, one thing to stay up late or to rise up early, one thing to post on social media, one thing. The story is told of a prince who was taken prisoner for a crime he had committed. His father, the king, came to his cell and promised to release him on one condition. That at noon the next day, he'd be led through the streets in his prison clothes. Oh, said the prince, I cannot bear the mocking of the people. The king replied, I still haven't told you how you will be led. So the prince agreed. At noon the next day, the king gave his son a glass brimming to the top with milk. And he instructed him, this is the condition. You have to walk through the street in your prison guard, holding this glass to the top with milk. If you drop one, if, if you lose one drop, it will be your life. The prince knew, knowing his father was, was serious, Took the glass, walked through the streets. How do you how do you walk with a glass full, right? When he finished, his father asked him, Tell me about the mocking of the people. To which the prince replied, I didn't see any. I only saw my life in my hands. One thing. One thing. One thing, beloved. We have to do. There's one. You've heard, you've heard the, the line. You only have one job. You only have one job, beloved. The church of Jesus Christ on this planet has one job. To get the love of Jesus to the world. To get the love of Jesus to the world. Our life and their lives depend on it. One thing. You're worried about people. Man, isn't it a messed up world? Social media attacking each other. You won't see it if you're consumed with the one thing. You won't see it. Let me read for you this final line. When the religion of Christ is most held in contempt, when his law is most despised, then should our zeal be the warmest and our courage and firmness the most unflinching. To stand in defense of the truth and righteousness when the majority forsake us, to fight the battles of the Lord when champions are few, this will be our test. At this time, now, 
We must gather warmth from the coldness of others, courage from their cowardice, and loyalty from their treason. One thing, one thing, Jesus, one thing. And I won't see the mocking of everyone else. We've got one job, church. And the book of Daniel, the stories of Daniel, the life of Daniel will speak directly to that. One thing, Father in heaven, one thing, one thing. May we gather warmth from their coldness, courage from their cowardice, and loyalty from their treason. May we set the temperature and not reflect the temperature. May we be consumed, controlled by one thing. In the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.